Well, good morning. Welcome again here to the Bridge Church. So, so glad to see you all here. I had this moment uh, standing back there and worshiping and just seeing you come in and just uh, getting kind of emotional, a little bit choked up, because I just, I cannot take it for granted that we're in this building and that we are here in the flesh. It was such a long time waiting, and it, is, it just still blows me away that here, here we are. Is that not incredible? We, we took it for granted, didn't we? And, and now, now we realize how much of a gift it is to be here in the flesh. And for those of you who are on live stream too, but you're kind of missing out, but we're glad that you're here too, for sure. Uh, and, and so many of you who are, are new or like, I, I don't recognize you, and that just makes me so excited. Uh, and so a special welcome to you. I can't see you because lights are blinding my eyes right now, but you're out there. And, uh, and uh, just so the kids left earlier, if you have really young ones, uh, we have a nursery set up upstairs in one of those side rooms. And so if, you, if your kids are giving you problems, I don't mind at all. But if you mind, then you can, you can go up there. Anyways, let's, uh, let's pray. So, Lord, as, as we have just kind of reflected a little bit here on what a gift this is, God, we recognize that it is a gift from you. Uh, that this building is a, is a gift from you, this new home. And that just the, the, the ability to gather together and to worship and to pray and to hear your word, uh, Lord, is a gift from you. And so we, we just say thank you, God. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your faithfulness, Lord. And we ask today, God, that you would keep our hearts soft towards you. That as we hear your word, that you would keep our hearts soft. That we would hear what you have to say to us. That you would shape us and form us and, and transform us. God, we surrender ourselves to you today in the name of Jesus. Amen. So we are in the, in the classics, that's what we're calling this series, in a bunch of these Old Testament stories that are well-known, well-loved, common fodder for kids' Sunday school lessons, and uh, stories that have kind of a, a wide cultural awareness, even among people who have never read the Bible, have never been to church. And today we are in one of the quintessential classics, top five, maybe top ten for sure, Daniel in the lion's den. We're going to jump right into it. It's found in Daniel 6. If you've got your Bible with you, you can open it up there. It'll also be on the screen. But Daniel 6, just start with the first three verses. It pleased Darius to appoint 120 satraps to rule throughout the kingdom with three administrators over them, one of whom was Daniel. The satraps were made accountable to them so that the king might not suffer loss. Now Daniel so distinguished himself among the administrators and the satraps by his exceptional qualities that the king planned to set him over the whole kingdom. This first act of the story, uh, which we'll, we'll carry on a little bit more, we're going to call politics. And, and first, just so you are kind of aware of the politics of the world at that time, for over a century before this, the Babylonians had been the the empire, the superpower in the ancient Near East. Uh, one of the nations they had overrun and conquered was the small nation of Judah. Uh, and so they had taken a bunch of the elites from the capital city, Jerusalem, and they had, they had removed them to Babylon, and they had chosen some of the 
most promising prospects and, and given them a, a re-education, forcible kind of re-education. And Daniel was one of those young Jewish exiles from Jerusalem who was kind of chosen and given a re-education in the ways of Babylon so that he could serve the king. And that kind of thing, that exile, that re-education is, of course, tragically common in our world today. And all the news about residential schools reminds us of that reality for many even here in Canada. So that was kind of Daniel's situation. Now, in the Babylonian administration, Daniel proved himself to be a man of incredible character and giftedness and skill, so he ascended through the ranks. And then, when he was probably in his 80s, this is now the last half of the 6th century BC, the Persian Empire uh, conquered the Babylonians, won a series of, of victories, and suddenly now all of these lands that were once Babylonian were now Persian. And, and Daniel, in his 80s, now needed to learn yet another set of new customs, a new language. And once again, he succeeded so much that he rose through the ranks. And, and Darius, who, if we were to reconcile uh, the ancient history accounts that we have with the Bible, uh, Cyrus was the king of Persia, and it seems he entrusted the Babylonian lands to this Darius, who kind of was this governor or this king of this area. And, and Darius looked at Daniel and said, this man is going to be my right-hand man. Not only is he going to be one of three kind of overseeing all of my officials, in fact, I want to make him like deputy prime minister, vice president, whatever. He's going to be, he's going to be my right-hand man. Now, I, I got to tell you, I'm a little bit of a, of a separatist. Not when it comes to like Quebec sovereignty. I'm not, I don't really have a skin in that game. But, but in terms of the kingdom, uh, Daniel and Carol are like, oh, that's such a relief. Uh, the, uh, no, what I, what I mean is the distinction between the kingdom of God and the kingdoms of this, of this world. The Bible says that we are in the world as followers of Jesus, but not of it. That we are actually exiles that this world is not our eternal, permanent home, but in, instead that we are longing for the, the new heavens and the new earth. And, and so I, I have this kind of thought that, that really uh, Christians and, and politics really shouldn't mix very much, right? That, that that gets kind of ugly when that happens. But Daniel is a really good reminder to me and a witness to me that it is possible to be deeply immersed in, in matters of society and civic affairs, even in a pagan nation like Babylon and then Persia, and yet still be faithful to God. In fact, Daniel is an example to us of someone whose presence in that situation, serving that way, was actually a blessing exactly because of his faith. I'm reminded of this letter that the prophet Jeremiah sent to those first exiles from Jerusalem. You find it in Jeremiah 29, where Jeremiah writes to them and says, look, you're going to be there for a while. So settle down, build houses, plant gardens, have children, and seek the peace and prosperity of the place that I've called you. And I think that's our calling too, don't you? That we are here as exiles living by a different set of values and a different view, and yet we are called to seek the peace and prosperity of this place. And that our work in doing that, in improving our communities, in the work in, in building people up in this world is a worthy one. In fact, it is an act of worship. 
And that's the key for Daniel in the world of politics and for all of us, is that he was not doing his work for human favor or applause. He was doing it for God. Paul in in Colossians 3 uh, speaks to slaves in the Roman Empire, and he says, do your work, serve your masters, not for their approval, but in the eyes of God, do your work, everything you do, for Jesus. So here's the, the, here's the thing. This set Daniel apart. That, that made Daniel look different, uh, especially because that way of thinking was definitely not the way that the other officials in Persia thought. Let's pick it up again in verse 4. At this, the administrators and the satraps tried to find grounds for charges against Daniel in his conduct of government affairs, but they were unable to do so. They could find no corruption in him because he was trustworthy and neither corrupt nor negligent. Finally, these men said, we'll never find any basis for charges against this man, Daniel, unless it has something to do with the law of his God. Wouldn't that be wonderful if people who were opposed to Christian faith tried so hard to find something wrong with Christian leaders and couldn't? (sighs) So these administrators and satraps went as a group to the king and said, may King Darius live forever. The royal administrators, prefects, satraps, advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. Now, your majesty, issue the decree and put it in writing so that it cannot be altered in accordance with the law of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be repealed. So King Darius put the decree in writing. So with Daniel, we see politics at its best. With these guys, we see politics at its worst. Um, I don't know if you've ever watched the show Designated Survivor. The first couple of seasons, it was, pretty, it was a pretty good show. And then Netflix took it over and decided to make it into like a rated, mature, very adult-themed show, which makes sense because Netflix has so much squeaky clean content, you know, they just have to mix it up a little bit, you know? They just got to produce some moral filth every once in a while because they never do that otherwise. Just some slight sarcasm there. So uh, the, first, the first season, the idea is Kiefer Sutherland's character is uh, a minor government department head, and he has no political aspirations, just wants to serve, but he becomes the president because all of the elected politicians are killed in an attack on the Capitol building in the U.S. So he becomes the president, and he's this guy who just makes decisions based on what's right and reasonable and good for the country, but he's constantly beset by all of these people who are jockeying for power, who are politicking, who are just driven by selfish ambition. I feel like the first season of Designated Survivor is a secular version of the events of of Daniel 6. These officials are driven not by a desire to improve their society, but by a desire to to advance personally. So they're jealous of Daniel. They want to be like him. They want to be in his situation. They might also be driven by a little bit of ethnocentricity, by racism, actually. We get a hint of that in verse 13, where they say to the king, Daniel, who is one of the exiles from Judah, pays no attention to you, your majesty. They call this out. They're like, look, 
probably a lot of these, these officials are Persians or maybe Babylonians closely related. Daniel probably stood out as a Jewish exile. And they, look, they say, look at that guy. He's, he's weird. He's different. He doesn't pay any attention to you. You've got to do something about him. So they're, they're driven by this kind of personal ambition, this, this prejudice, and they decide to play a game of gotcha, which is a miserable, frustrating game to play, isn't it? I mean, we see that in our culture all the time, where people so eagerly look for fault in another person, and then they blow it out of proportion. They try to get that person fired or canceled or deplatformed or whatever. But if someone on their side or in their group does the same thing, they turn a blind eye because it doesn't fit the narrative, because it's not to their benefit. It's not, it's not about truth and justice. It's about personal advancement. And it happens all across the political spectrum. It's not a, it's not a left-wing thing or a right-wing thing. It's, it's, it's not one media outlet versus another. It's, it's a human thing. This is kind of what we do. And so they play a game of gotcha, but they can't. Like we said, he, Daniel is a man of integrity. They realize the only thing they can nail him on is his devotion to Yahweh, his habit of praying. And so they go to the king, and they pump his tires... You know, may you live forever, king. You're so amazing. And we think everybody should just pray to you for 30 days. Which, for Darius, would have seemed like maybe a a smart political decision. You're the new guy, the new regime, replacing an old one. You want to make sure everybody's on the same page. This This is what politicians do, right? New guy comes in, you repeal all the laws of the previous guy, you you kind of you undo everything that they did because everything they did was nothing but hot trash. So you just here here's the here's the new thing, right? And that's what Darius probably is thinking. Here's a way to get everybody on the same page, plus his ego is getting kind of stroked here, right? I mean, hey, like I, I am the divine manifestation. I am the representative of the gods. Everybody should be giving me reverence, of course. In fact, I think pride so blinds Darius that he doesn't even realize that Daniel, his right-hand man, isn't even there. And that this, this law that he's about to sign into effect is going to be really bad for Daniel. So here's the moral of, the, of this first act that we're calling politics do the work whether you're in politics or whatever do the work of serving your community of trying to benefit others of of building your world up do that do that work don't be surprised if your efforts are frustrated by by the selfishness and prideful ambition of this broken world that's nothing new the saints of old like daniel experienced that too so the key is to do it for the lord not for humans which leads us to act two which we'll call prayer verses 10 to 12 now when daniel learned that the decree had been published he went home to his upstairs room where the windows opened toward jerusalem Three times a day he got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God, just as he had done before. Then these men went as a group, and they found Daniel praying and asking God for help. So they went to the king, and they spoke to him about his royal decree. Did you not publish a decree that during the next 30 days, anyone who prays to any god or human being except to you, your majesty, would be thrown into the lion's den? five things 
I notice about prayer here in this, in this section. The first is that prayer was a habit for Daniel, a habit that I think was the source of his, of his wisdom and his ability to serve so well. It was a habit. Verse 10, we read that Daniel goes to his upstairs room and three times a day he gets down and he prays as he had done before. This was, this was a, a practice in his life. Now we're told, interestingly, that he prayed towards Jerusalem, which isn't something we see anywhere else in, uh, in, in, in Scripture, I don't think. No, we don't see that in the New Testament. It's not a practice that we as followers of Jesus have. Uh, Muslims, of course, pray towards Mecca. Uh, but we, we, we don't pray towards a city. In fact, we pray towards a heavenly city as, as followers of Jesus. Daniel's desire was for the earthly city of Jerusalem to be restored and built up again. Our, the orientation of our hearts is for the kingdom of God to break in, the heavenly, the heavenly city of God to come and make its home among us. That's, that's, that's our orientation, but that's why Daniel prayed towards Jerusalem, and he does it three times a day. And again, in the context of this passage, it would seem that this constant discipline or habit of prayer was what enabled Daniel to serve as well as he did, to have the kind of integrity that he did. Second, and related to that, is that Daniel had this discipline or habit even in the midst of busyness, right? I mean, Daniel had a lot of responsibility. He, I, I, would, I would guess that Daniel did a lot of the actual work. Do, do you know, maybe some of you are one of these, these uh, business people who have gotten to a place where you could just pay everybody else to do the work and you could just go on endless vacations. It's the dream, right? Like, that's amazing. I would think that Darius, as a king, was a bit like that. He was like, well, I got, I got Daniel. What do I need to do anything for? Bring on the in-home entertainment, Right? I mean, later on in the story, we read that the king actually was so stressed by Daniel's night in the lion's den. Spoiler alert, that's where we're going. If you didn't know from the title of the story, Daniel, I'm sorry about that. Daniel ends up in the lion's den. Um, so, so he's so stressed that he actually abstains from having in-home entertainment. Apparently this was such a regular thing for him. It's just a little detail, but it makes me wonder just how much of the, how many of the decisions, the responsibility for the, for the, the smooth running of the administration actually was on Daniel's shoulders. Uh, and yet, even though he was so busy, he prayed three times a day, set aside time to be with the Lord. See, we have this, this, this mindset or attitude of, about prayer, some of us, that, that prayer is a kind of a luxury that you tack on to your life when you're able, when you have time. And it's not, to be frank, a very interesting or exciting luxury either. It's, it's probably best left to retired people who no longer have a, a job or young kids at home. And if we're to be totally honest... Uh, sitting there and kind of like passively talking to God seems like things that, seems like something that, that women would generally be better at. So retired women especially can pray. Now I know you're all just ready to like send me an angry email right now. I'm just naming a thought pattern, guys. I'm not saying I agree with it, okay? I'm just saying this is kind of how some of us think. And it's wrong. It's incorrect. As we see with Daniel, here is this, this man who is who has so much going on, yet for him, prayer is not something that it's like, well, if I have time at the end of the day, I, I can set it aside for prayer. No, for him, it was so crucial. 
It was so indispensable for him to spend regular time with the Lord in order for him to be able to do what he did. Uh, This past week, I was skimming through a book on prayer by Leonard Ravenhill, who is this uh, guy who wrote in the 1950s, this fiery revivalist. I read him when I need to get a sparklet under my butt. And uh, Ravenhill talks, talks about these pastors who would spend hours in prayer. There, they, there would be grooves worn into the carpet and the chairs of their off, in, in their office because of the time they spent on their hands and knees in, in prayer. And he talks about how these pastors were used by God to draw many more people to faith in Jesus than pastors who in the eyes of the world were a lot busier. And this is the defining quote from, from Ravenhill. He says, to be much for God, we must be much with God. Prayer is not a luxury. It's not an appendix to your life. It's not something to add on if you have nothing else. It is essential. It is indispensable. It is crucial for you to, to live your life as God has called you to live it. The third thing we see about prayer here is that it is Daniel's first response. In fact, it's not just his first response, it is his response. Daniel is stuck between the proverbial rock and a hard place. He's choosing either between faithfulness to God or adherence to the laws of the land. That's, his, that, that's the, the decision that he has to make. And notice what Daniel does not do. First of all, he clearly does not compromise his faith. Daniel would have had to be pretty flexible. He needed a lot of wisdom to conduct himself in the Babylonian and Persian administrations. There were were probably things that he had to lay down, customs or habits that he had to let go of in order to serve well in this setting. But when it came to, and this is why we got to be flexible on secondary things, but anything that's core to the gospel, anything clearly revealed in the word of God, there's no, there's no room, there's no compromise. Daniel cannot, cannot waver on his allegiance to God. So he, does, he doesn't compromise. He doesn't just go, well, God, I'm sorry, we need to take a break for a month. You know, there's kind of this big thing going on in my life. I kind of, can you just hold off for a month and I'll, I'll talk to you at the end of that? Not what Daniel says. But he also does not respond by complaining. He doesn't respond by fighting back. He doesn't respond by trying to retaliate against these conspirators. And I think this is an important reminder for us in the Western church. Uh, Because as our culture moves further and further, distances itself more and more, from Christian faith, it will probably become more and more, and and some of you are experiencing this already, it will become more and more uncomfortable to be a follower of Jesus. It'll be more and more difficult to fit in seamlessly. And and we will be tempted, on the one hand, to to compromise and to just kind of like, just, just, you know, just kind of let some things go that are actually pretty core, but we just don't want to cause problems. Or on the other hand, to try to fight back as the world fights. And this is what connects back to the David versus Goliath story from last week. That what Daniel recognized and what we need to recognize is that the battle is the Lord's. And so we do not fight as the world fights. This is how Daniel fights. This is how he responds. Through prayer. He prays. That, 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 that is his response. And he entrusts the consequences to God. 
Here's the, the fourth thing I notice, is the content of Daniel's prayer. And this I hadn't noticed before. This, this really kind of startled me, uh, that in verse 10 we read that Daniel got on his knees and prayed, giving thanks to his God. What is he giving thanks for? I mean, his life is being threatened by the evil political maneuverings of these other officials. What is he giving thanks for? I mean, I, I think if I was in his situation, I would maybe pray as my first response, but my prayer would all be complaint and lament and calling down fire on my enemies. That's what, probably what my prayer would be. Daniel gives thanks. You know, truthfully, I struggle to give thanks in the best of circumstances. I, I, you know, I, I struggle with discontentedness. I have a tendency to always look at other situations and think that the grass is greener on the other side. And social media probably doesn't help here. I mean, we kind of blame social media for everything nowadays, right? Like, I think global warming is probably social media's fault somehow. Uh, but, but always seeing what's going on in the world around and always comparing yourself. And inevitably, you know, the comparison sometimes leaves you feeling inferior, feeling like you're lacking. And, and so there's this, this ingratitude, and it's a miserable way to live. And one of the best antidotes to that is to pray and to pray with thanksgiving, to recognize that everything good that we do have is a gift from God. It's his grace, it's his goodness, and just, just to, to recognize that will do so much to counteract that intuitive kind of discontentedness that a lot of us feel in the modern world. The, the fifth and final thing I notice about prayer here, uh, we've talked about prayer as, as being this uh, response, as a way that we you know, we, we enter into the Lord's battle, this, this, this uh, source of, of wisdom, this essential habit. Uh, how about this? Prayer is the source of Daniel's troubles. Didn't see that coming, did you? It's what causes him his problems here. It's what gets him arrested. It's what gets him thrown into the lion's den. It's what leads him to his impending death. And Probably, for most of us, this exact experience won't be replicated. Like, it probably isn't prayer that will get you killed in, in Canada. Uh, it could, but, but probably not. In other parts of the world, maybe a bit more likely. But I think there is something here that's true generally about prayer, especially when we li listen to the witness of the saints in ages past. Listen to Samuel Chadwick. He was a firebrand preacher from the 19th century. He said about prayer... Always there is the cost of passion unto blood. Such prayer prevails. It turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. I think there Chadwick was talking about, thinking about the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane where he actually sweat blood. But this is, this is the cost at times, of real prayer is, uh, is, is, is that it's a sacrifice. It's a death to our pride and our sense of sufficiency. It can hurt. Leonard Ravenhill, in that book, he talks about these pastors who would spend hours and hours in prayer and emerge with just, just drenched in tears and with this deep grief, which doesn't sound very appealing. But it wasn't because of their own life or their circumstances, it was because such a heavy conviction had been laid on them for the salvation of others. 
This is so heavy on them that they felt this, this grief, this longing for people. When you pray superficially, you don't get that. But when you pray deeply, when you really enter into the heart of God in prayer, then there is this passion unto blood. Here's the thing about that kind of prayer, though, that deep prayer. And, and we, don't, we don't always pray like that. I don't always pray like that, but I've experienced that. And, and when prayer is like that, when, when, it, when it hurts, when it costs something, as Chadwick says, it's also the prayer that prevails. It's the prayer that brings power, that leads to deliverance, and that leads to our final act, Act 3, which we're going to call power. Now, uh, just to skip over a few verses, there's a dialogue between the king and, and his officials. The king really wants to save Daniel. The officials remind him, you can't. The laws of the Persians can't be altered. You made the law. You have to stick with it. And so in verse 16, we pick it up. So the king gave the order, and they brought Daniel, and they threw him into the lion's den. The king said to Daniel, may your God, whom you serve continually, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den, and the king sealed it with his own signet ring and with the rings of his nobles so that Daniel's situation might not be changed. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night without eating and without any entertainment. There it is. He went the night without Netflix. Being brought to him, and he could not sleep. At the first light of dawn, the king got up and he hurried to the lion's den. When he came near the den, he called to Daniel in an anguished voice, Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, May the king live forever. My God sent his angel, and he shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me, because I was found innocent in his sight, nor have I ever done any wrong before you, your majesty." The king was overjoyed and gave orders to lift Daniel out of the den. And when Daniel was lifted from the den, no wound was found on him because he had trusted in his God. You know how every week I tell you about the grisly detail that gets left out of the Sunday school story? So here's the, here's the 14A detail from this story. Immediately after this, the king turns, Darius turns to all of the conspirators, all the satraps and administrators, and he throws them and their wives and their children into the lion's den. And Daniel tells us that the, the, the lions were so ravenously hungry they devoured the bodies before they even hit the floor. So that's nice. But that's not the point of this section. The point is, <laughs> the point is the power, the power of God. See, when you look at this at first, you would think, well, where does power reside in Persia? And you would think, well, it must reside with Darius. He's, he's the king of this, of this area. That's where the power is. But Daniel, Darius, sorry, Darius is revealed to be powerless to save Daniel. He's a victim of his own law. He can't do anything. He doesn't have power. What about... What about all those officials, the satraps, the administrators? I mean, they succeed in ridding themselves of a political opponent. They seem pretty powerful, except that in the end there's the whole reversal thing, and they're in the lion's den. What about Daniel? Eventually you might say, well, I guess Daniel has power because he survived this night in the lion's den without a scratch on him, so there must be something about him that is powerful. But of course, 
the text reveals where the real power is. And yes, in some ways it's related to Daniel, but, but the real power, of course, resides outside of him. The, the real power here comes from God. This is a power. The power of God is superior to the power of the lions. In fact, the creation as a whole. We're not told exactly what happened in the lion's den, but pretty clearly Daniel was not some kind of triple black belt octogenarian judo champion. And he doesn't fight off the lions. God closes their mouths. God tells the lions what to do, and they obey. See, oftentimes we see God's power revealed in creation in normal everyday things. We see his power in earthquakes and thunderstorms and the rushing waters of a river or a waterfall that, 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 that speaks to us about the power of, of God. But sometimes we see God's power revealed when creation does unexpected things, when it acts differently in response to the needs and prayers of God's people. We call those things miracles. I've told you about this book before. Uh, it's not a book. I'm not like, hey, you should read this book because most of you, it's like, it's like a 1,000-page, two-volume thing. So if you're up for it, let me know. I'll lend it to you. But it's, it's a two-volume masterpiece on miracles by New Testament scholar Craig Keener. And, he, and, he, and the first part, he just dismantles the modern assumption that miracles can't happen. just shows how that worldview just doesn't work philosophically, and then he provides hundreds and hundreds of pages of testimonies, of, of verifiable kind of miracles. Like he's just like, and then this happened, and this happened, and this happened, I talked to this person and that person. It's hundreds of pages of this, including nature miracles, where maybe a, a weather pattern was, was changed or an animal did something. It was just like some very strange, unexplained thing in response to the prayers of God's people. Uh, my grandfather... He, uh, he was a, a pastor and, and professor for decades, and a couple years ago, he, he wrote a little autobiography, mainly for his grandkids. And when he was uh, a young adult, he was a farmer in Manitoba, and, and he, he had all kinds of dreams and aspirations about that, but he was wrestling with this sense of God's call to pastoral ministry. And, uh, and one day, there was this thunderstorm, it was, it was a hailstorm, and it totally destroyed his field like completely obliterated his crops. And this hailstorm did not touch any of his neighbor's fields. Which seems like a strange miracle, right? It's like an anti-miracle. Like, hey, thanks, God. Thanks for taking away my harvest. But he took that as, as, as God directing him uh, and pointing him in a different direction. And I got to say, my, my father's life, my life, we've all been, it's, it's all been set in a vastly different trajectory because, because of it. So again, God, God usually displays his power through the normal workings of creation, but sometimes by, by telling creation to do something very different, as he does in Daniel 6. God's power here is also shown to be superior to the evil plots of human beings. Right? All these guys, they are conspiring to get Daniel thrown into the lion's den. But God kind of goes, ah, I don't think so. It's not what I have in mind. Uh, it reminds me of, of Psalm 2, a couple of lines there from Psalm 2. We read, why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. It's like God 
looks at these little humans running around with all their self-importance, you know, coming up with their schemes, and he just kind of goes, nah, you got nothing. Psalm 33, similar, says the Lord foils the plans of the nations. He thwarts the purposes of the peoples. But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of his heart through all generations. See, here's the thing. Even if God had not delivered Daniel from the lion's den, God still would have been working to accomplish his purposes. There are countless examples in history of human powers and authorities that tried to stamp out the church, the people of God, and yet God used that, used the faithful endurance of his people even to martyrdom to draw people to faith in him. I've mentioned it many times before. I know a lot of you are new, so you haven't heard me, but I love stories about the underground church in China, and, and I think the experience of the church in China since Uh, since communist rule uh, over the last 70 years or so is exhibit A here, where human authorities had one plan and God just totally turned it around and accomplished his own purposes. God is, God's power is superior to any power among humanity. And, And then third and finally, God's power is revealed to be greater than the grave, which is what the lion's den was supposed to be, right? It was supposed to be Daniel's grave. And this is what has led Christian readers of this story for thousands of years to see echoes of the resurrection of Jesus here. Think about it. Both Daniel and Jesus are victims of conspiracy and betrayal. Both Daniel and Jesus are arrested during prayer in their customary place of prayer. Both are Both are seen by the higher authority as being innocent. And yet in both cases, the higher authority is reminded that they cannot actually release the man because of the laws of the land. And in both Jesus and Daniel's case, God delivers them from the grave. The only difference is that with Jesus, God ratchets up the difficulty level just a few dozen notches. Because death actually does grab a hold of Jesus. Jesus actually does die physically and bodily, and yet God delivers him from the grave, raises him to everlasting resurrection life. And this power, this power that is greater than anything in creation, that is greater than anything among humans, that is greater than death itself, this power the Bible tells us, is available to all who trust in Jesus. In Romans 8, Paul says that all who trust in Jesus will be resurrected with the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That if you trust in him, that power is the assurance of your deliverance from death. In Ephesians 1, we read Paul praying that the readers, his readers, would have their eyes opened so that they could see the incomparably great power for us who believe. That power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. That is the power that is available to you in Jesus Christ. It is a power that changes everything. For Daniel, it led to his deliverance from the lion's den, but it also led Darius to issue a decree through the whole land that people would give reverence to Daniel's God, Yahweh. 
Darius says, I issue a decree that everyone must fear and reverence the God of Daniel, for he is the living God, and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. And I wonder how many people came to faith in the living God because of Daniel's testimony, because of his story of the power of God. Here's the wrap-up. You are in the world. You are not of it. You are exiles here. But you are called to seek the peace and prosperity of this place that God has called you to. In this world where selfish ambition and self-destructiveness rule the day, prayer will be your essential habit, your essential discipline. Prayer will be your refuge. Prayer will be your source for wisdom and your source for courage not to compromise. And this prayer, when it is done in faith through Jesus' name, is what is what opens this world up to the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. It is what softens hearts and leads people to worship. Politics, prayer, power. Daniel is a, is a testimony of what God can do when we follow the Lord in all three. Let's pray. God, we give you thanks for your servant Daniel. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of his life. We thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your power at work. And so, God, I pray that you would fill us this morning with a fresh infilling of faith, faith in your power, and a hunger and a desire to come to you in prayer often, frequently. Lord, so that we could live in this world as you have called us to live, as exiles who yet love this place and seek its peace and prosperity. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would fill us afresh with faith in you. And Lord, I, I pray for those who are here this morning who are feeling discouraged, who are feeling defeated. Those, uh, Lord, who who feel overwhelmed by creation, by this virus, who feel overwhelmed by the plots and schemes of people around them, who feel overwhelmed by the fear of death. And I pray, Lord, that you would open their eyes again to the incomparably great power for all of us who believe. In Jesus' name, amen.